guys, this is the Scripture Study Project, our podcast that gives you a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you are learning to others. I am your co-host, Krista Horton, and I'm with my other co-host. Is that how you say that? Co-hosts. That sounds kind of weird. It's actually kind of like Jim and... um, Michael. Michael Scott, because we're when they're co when they're co managers, <laughs> it always sounds we weird, be, and it kind of sounds weird. You could be weird. the host, and I could be the assistant to the host. Yeah, let's do that. I like the sound I'm of the that better. The regional host, I'm the assistant to the regional yeah. host. There you go. Hey, welcome everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we're excited to be here studying with you today. We're going to be studying in John chapter seven through ten. Um, great block. Yeah, um, we were just talking about whether or not you listen to this podcast on like normal speed or sped up speed. Ah. And I think one of these times we had to throw in a, an introduction on like that we record faster just to throw people off or record slower. Or we could do contests to see who can say it faster. Yes. And how fast it gets. If you guys don't listen to your podcasts on a little bit faster speed, I'm sure most of you do. We sound much better faster. We I just, think we do. We sound and like we know what we're doing. But our music sounds cooler slower. So Yeah. Got to decide what you, what you're looking for here. Anyway, <laughs> thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Whether you're listening to us on one speed or on three speed. So, anyway, we're gonna start off today with kind of we were thinking. You know, it's kind of that lull of the year. We're we've been studying. Come follow me. This excitement of the beginning of the year is kind of over, and. How's your Come Follow Me study going? We were kind of reviewing what we were doing and thought it would be kind of fun to have you guys think a little more about it with us on how it's been going for you and your family. And this was spurred on by one of the, I love the little study tips that they put in the Come Follow Me manuals um, or the improving teaching tips or study tips. And this one is a quote from President Eyring. He says, never miss a chance to gather children together to learn of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Such moments are so rare in comparison with the efforts of the enemy. And I think I have to say that um, one of the things that I think has been just so cool about the whole Come Follow Me, and I probably said this before, but just that unifying feeling and I think tangible feeling and what's really happening is that everyone studying together has just been awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, you're having, it's just, I think there wouldn't be anyone who hasn't said yet that they're even trying a little bit harder. Maybe you're not going full, full out, come follow me. And you're doing it every day with your family or whatever it looks like for you. I just feel like everyone's trying a little bit harder to be in the scriptures. And it's cool that we all get to do it together. I think we've learned a couple of lessons in our family as we were talking um, we've noticed that our, the formality has decreased a lot. When we first started, it was a, you know, our, our kids had like lesson ideas and they wanted us to do this or do this or draw this. And, and we still do that from time to time. We had a little bit more of that during our Easter week. They had more thoughts, but I kind more of liked, activities. I kind of like the trend towards less formality and more just study. Um, I, I think the more we can break our study of the New Testament this year, away from the lesson, teacher, student format, which we already get on Sunday, 
but in home to be more of this discussion, ongoing discussion. We're talking about it. We're wrestling with it. We're reading it. We're asking questions about it. I think it's a really good, healthy way to have scriptures in our home. And I think that's something I've really enjoyed with ours is that Mm -hmm. we still have our kids at the beginning of the week. We still um, ask them to sign up for specific stories that they want to lead our study in. But then when we get there on that night, they don't have a lesson prepared. They just are the ones that they, you know, they either they read the scriptures or they ask us to read it. They ask a question. They kind of lead the discussion with our coaching. And, and this is our, you know, our, our young kids. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's why that quote from President Eyring really just rings true to my heart is that it's not really about the formality. And I'm not giving up our binders. I don't use them as much, but I really feel like having something tangible occasionally is great. But I think that word gather is the key, that we are gathering together to teach and learn, and like Zach said, to wrestle with the scriptures and to understand each other and just to be in the presence of each other, learning about God and learning about Jesus Christ. And I think that's where the beauty comes. I Maybe I've mentioned this here before, but I when, when I get parents that come into parent-teacher conference, uh, I, I get great parents that come in. And so I've stopped telling them that their kids are great. Well, I just still tell them that, but they know that. And so I started interviewing parents just because I'm curious how so many of these parents get such great kids. And it's been interesting because as I interview them, I haven't found um, any golden bullet that every parent is doing. Because that's what originally you were looking for. I thought there's got to be something that all these parents are doing. It's either we do this for family home evening or we do family scripture study or what is it? And every family is different. But what I have found that's common in all these parents is that all of them are deliberately doing something to connect with their kids and to connect their kids with God. And it looks different in every family. For some family, it is a really full-blown, two-hour-long family home evening that they do every week and their kids love it. The next parents that come in, it's family home evening is like five minutes or 10 minutes, but they go into their, one mom said every night she goes in and she lays down her kids' beds and just talks with them for a couple of minutes about their day and prays with them. And I love that that uh, it can be so variable. And I think that's the beauty of our current New Testament study is in our homes. It's so tailored to what's going on in your home and family, um, but helps us come close to the Savior. So Yeah, and remembering that those moments really do matter, like President Irene says, in comparison to what they're getting bombarded with, the strength that we can give them from the scriptures, from the love of family and from connection can just be so powerful for us and for them. So if you're... If you would like to add your comments to this, we'd love to hear from you on Instagram this week. What's working well in Come Follow Me? What have you noticed well with your family? Here we are four, four months in. If it's not going well, take this as your pump up, your 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 cheerleading and, and rejuvenated. Get started again. Um, if just you haven't doing, started yet, yeah, just do yeah, small, just by things. Doing small things. Just small things. Just read the Whether scripture with your Whether that's personally kids. Yep. or with your or family. With family. Wonderful. Same, same thing. So. Okay. Um, John chapter 7 through 10 is this... Uh, starts kind of interesting in John chapter seven, it's loaded with different people and their opinions about the savior. I looked up just uh, briefly the most recent polls, nationwide polls that I could find on what people believe about Jesus. Uh, There was one in 2015 and uh, five main findings from this poll are that most Americans Uh, believe that Jesus was a real person. A little bit less than half of all Americans, however, uh, do not believe that he was in any way 
uh, divine. So it's like 40-something percent, 44% believe that he was a, a religious or spiritual leader like Muhammad or like Buddha, but was not the Christ, wasn't the Son of God, wasn't divine in any way, um, etc. Um, their Americans are very divided on whether or not they think Jesus was sinless. About half of Americans think that, yes, he was sinless. Uh, half of Americans think that, no, he wasn't sinless. Again, just that he was this kind of normal man. That's an interesting statistic. Uh -huh. I'm actually surprised that it's 50%. A lot of Americans uh, do say that they have made a commitment to Jesus in some way through their faith or individually. Um, but that number is declining a lot in recent years um, as religiosity decreases in America and really across the globe. Fewer people every year care about going to church and being organized or, or being associated with an organized religion. Um, and people are very conflicted on to what degree following Jesus helps them to get to heaven, if they even believe in a heaven. And so in our world today, I think uh, it's the same questions are being asked. Who is this Jesus? And in John chapter 7, that's the question that starts the chapter. Uh, in the beginning, it's with his brothers, his actual half-brothers, that uh, don't believe John the narrator tells us that they don't believe really that he is who he says he is. We know that some of them do because uh, some of his brothers, James, one of his brothers, writes an epistle, which we get to later in the New Testament. Um, but then it's got the Pharisees and the Sadducees in there. It's got the people. Uh, verse 12, there was a lot of murmuring, some saying he's a good man, others saying he deceives the people. He has a devil, meaning he's crazy. Uh, he's this bumpkin from Galilee that doesn't know anything. Yeah, but he's teaching in the synagogue, so he really does know something, and all of this confusion. And in the middle of that, Jesus teaches, or begins to teach, here's how you can really know who I am. At the end of the block in John chapter 10, he teaches the similar principle, and this time he uses a symbol of a shepherd and a sheep. And he says, uh, this is John chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of my sheep. I mean, my sheep know who I am. He clarifies, uh, if a robber comes to try and steal the sheep, they won't follow him. Then in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Um, I looked up a little while ago what the difference is between shepherding and sheep herding. There's some really cool videos on YouTube on like extreme sheep herding. And the way that sheep herding works is they will send out dogs that chase behind the sheep and try and corral the sheep into an area. Shepherding is very different. There's no dogs, there's no fear, there's no corralling. The shepherd just comes out and has a unique whistle or a unique noise and even calls his sheep by name. And the sheep who recognize his voice will then follow the shepherd. So the shepherd leads the sheep, whereas the sheep herder chases behind him. And I love that symbol as a frame for this week's study. What is it about Jesus in the stories that we encounter this week in our study um, that helps us to recognize him and love him and want to follow him? What was his personality like? If Jesus were to show up today and he looked nothing like the paintings, you know, a lot of our paintings depict him in one way, but he could look complete, could have looked completely different. You know, he could have looked much more Middle Eastern than a lot of our paintings currently depict him. So what if he shows up and he doesn't look anything like the paintings? He doesn't have long hair, he doesn't have robes, he doesn't have blue eyes or white skin. Or... Could we recognize him? 
Would we be able to recognize him because of his personality, the way that his voice sounds, the way that he treats people? Could we recognize Jesus if he were to show up today? And what we want to do is, as we study these blocks, what do we learn about him, about his character, about his personality that would help us to recognize him, of course, when he comes again, but maybe more importantly, in our own lives? Let's start off with actually one of my favorite scriptures. This has been one of my favorite scriptures for a long time. And I think it's because, probably because it was a scripture mastery, actually. But yeah. <laughs> um, it's it's that call to action. I think it's a very tangible thing. And so that's maybe one of the first things that we learn about Jesus is coming to know him. He asks for some action. Mm-hmm. So this is John seven seventeen. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. So if you want to do the, if you want to know, then do something. And he teaches that again in John chapter eight, verse 30. He says, then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you through, set you free so that you're going to feel if you do it, you're going to feel, you're going to know it and you're going to feel what it's like. And I love the story that we read in the next chapter about the man born blind. This is Jesus sees this man that was born blind and he tells him, here is this mud, go wash this off of your eyes and you will be able to see again. And the man does that. And sure enough, he washed and he says, I did it. I washed and now I see. And of course, everyone's thinking, how did this happen? Because we know that you're this man. And of course, everyone's doing the, did he really, was this the man that we knew? Was this that man? Who was this? And so they have to come in and bring him and all of these testimonials of what really happened. Which even that's interesting. Jesus has done this before. He can heal someone on the spot. It's interesting that with this man, he chooses not to do it that way. He asks the man to go wash, knowing that it's probably going to be in a visible place. He's doing, uh, there's people that know him. And so not only does he have to wash, but he also has to stand up for him, for his faith. He has to go through this whole ordeal. I mean, there's a lot of action in here that Jesus is asking this man to go through. He gets questioned. His parents get questioned. He gets questioned again. He kind of goes through the ringer. So there's a lot to that point. There's a lot of works that he has to do. Some that Jesus commands and others that just come upon him as he's following that commandment. Mm-hmm before we get to the end of the story. And I like that he, you know, like you're saying, is they're saying, okay, what really happened here? In verse 25, he says, I don't know who this person is, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know is that I was blind and now I see. So in this very physical sense, he was blind and now he sees. And throughout these chapters, we hear Jesus teaching about him being the light again. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, right before he he mixes the mud he tells his disciples and this man, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And I love that this story kind of illustrates that very physical light or darkness to light. And also that what I feel is that darkness to light that can come as we test this out, as we do his will, we'll know the doctrine. As we try it, maybe we're in darkness and we don't know what that feels like, but that we can come into the light and really try it out ourselves to see if his works really are his, if he really is who he says he was, says he is. 
Well, I like that at the end of the story, the beginning of the story, he gets healed physically from not being able to see. But it's not until the very end, uh, verses what is it, 34 or 35, Jesus heard that he was cast out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe on the Son of God? And this man, has his, his commitment to God has completely changed where he says now, Lord, who is he? that I may believe on him and Jesus. Now his physical eyes are open and now Jesus opens his spiritual eyes. It's me. I am the one and this man follows him. And so there's this physical healing that comes quickly, this spiritual healing that comes later after this man has been through this process of working and obeying and really having to put his faith to the test. And trying to understand who Jesus is. And I think that's, I just love that illustration of of what Jesus is and that he really is the light in you know, in our actions and also that in that spiritual sense as well. The story that I really liked is uh, the chapter right before the story of the blind man, John chapter eight. It's one of my favorite stories. Um, There's a lot of uh, Bible commentators and scholars that believe this story of the woman taken in adultery was actually inserted later on. It doesn't really fit the narrative of what's happening in the end of John chapter seven. He's talking about light in the end of John chapter 7. And then in verse 12 in John chapter 8, he says to him, I am the light of the world, as if he's continuing on from where he left off in John 7, 53. So a lot of Bible scholars think that this story must have been added later by someone else who knew the story and thought this was a good place to put it. Whether that's true or not, the place of the story is very interesting. In this whole discussion of who is Jesus, what's he like? Is he this kind of person, this kind of person? And like you were just saying, that he's that that people can come to know him through acting and through obeying his words there's this story of this woman who is thrown at the feet of the savior and uh, those that accuse her stand around her and put jesus to the test and the test is they know by now they know his personality they know that he's gentle and that he's kind and that he seems to have a, a soft spot for those that have been cast out of society. Uh, He dines with publicans. He visits sinners. He spends time with lepers. And so they find a woman that they think, we know that he's going to have this special special charity for her. They throw her down in front of him. And the test is, okay, either he's going to have to stick to the law, which is stone her, because that's what it does say in the law for those that have committed adultery. Or, and if he does that, then he's violating the law and we've got him. We can nab him as he's preaching against the law. Or he's going to be uh, charitable to her. And then we've got him on something else because he's breaking the law and he's not upholding it. And so that's really the test. Jesus, of course, as is often the case, is able to sidestep it. What I love most is what this shows about his personality. The first thing Jesus does, the first action... Um, that is recorded in the story is in verse six. Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. I think it's interesting that the first move the savior makes is towards the woman to be on her level. They question him again and he stands up and says his thing to him. If any of you was without sin, let him first cast a stone. The mob disperses. And then, as he's with her, as soon as the crowd is gone, this is my favorite phrase in the whole story. 
Verse 10, when Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Um, Something I learn about the Savior when I read this is that his preference is to be individually with people, especially when we're going through something difficult. Um, He is a God of the individual. He's the one that invites people to come to him one by one, or he goes to them one by one. Um, And he does that with this woman. And then the first thing he does, as he did with the woman with the issue of blood that we read a couple weeks ago, he reasserts her identity. She has been tossed in the ground and probably been called a whole host of horrible things. And the first thing he uses to address her is this title of woman, which is the exact same word he uses to speak to his own mother. It's a title of honor and respect. And so he uses that word to address her, points out to her that there's no one around her condemning you. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so I love that Jesus is individual, that his first move is always towards us to be on our side. I love that he speaks to us with love and respect and helps us to reaffirm our identity. I also love that he doesn't excuse the woman. There's nowhere in here, I've heard people say, look how forgiving he is. There's nowhere in here where he expresses forgiveness for the sin. He expresses that there's no condemnation for it. And then he, like you said in the last story, he gives her an invitation, go and sin no more. With the understanding that as she goes and does that, she's going to experience forgiveness and she's going to experience love. Well, in thinking about how this really does help us know who Jesus is, like that first question that we started, we started the study with, is how often is that really how we recognize him now when we're thinking about him and when we're having those really one-on-one moments? I think of some of the most poignant moments in my life where, you know, my testimony is assured of, of him being there for me. And those moments come in really that, that individual inward sense. And as we look at the other one, of, as the other stories we've talked about, um, I was just thinking, how do you really make that, that light, you know, the help us helping us see. And I think that that's even kind of powerful too, to think, well, that light is literal, can be literal for us, but it can also be that inward light that we feel after trying something out, trying to obey and trying to do that. And so it's interesting to kind of put these, um, things that we're learning about Jesus into, what it really looks like for us. Well, to, to look for him. You know, we at yeah, the end of our right. Easter episode, we talked about the fact that if Jesus is alive, we testify all the time, I know Jesus lives. Well, if he's living, that means he's still doing mm-hmm. things, which means he's still doing the things he did back then with us today. Now, it may not be in the same physical, tangible sense, but if Jesus really does live, we should be able to see evidence in our life where, with your story, he prompts us or invites us through our thoughts and feelings to act in a certain way that brings more light into our life. And I think if you're being realistic and thinking about it, yeah, you can probably think of examples where you have felt promptings or feelings to act. And with this story, uh, we should be able to find evidence where we have, where his love for us has been reassured through individual private moments where we felt that he calls us by a divine name and, and calling. And those moments testify to us that he really does live and that he's alive, alive and doing things with us for us. And I, I think that's why I like kind of that overarching theme of, of the shepherd, Mm -hmm. because we, 
the things that I was writing down was those, how do we know? How do we know? How do the sheep, if we're, if we're the sheep, how do we know? How do those sheep know that the shepherds, that's their whistle or that's their name? And it's, it's almost like they feel the presence of the shepherd because when you think of the way that, you know, you described the, the sheep herders with this kind of this force, this, these dogs, this almost this scared feeling of like, mm-hmm. oh, I need to obey. Otherwise the dog's going to come and get me um, versus this very peaceful presence that the shepherd brings. He's, he comes out and almost like the sheep look at him just because they feel his presence there. And, they and recognize that, it. I'm no shepherd. I don't know if that really happens, but I like the thought of it. And mm-hmm. I think... From yep. your YouTube research, you could re- you could yes. reaffirm that. Yes. <laughs> but and also that they can recognize his voice through whether he talks to them or whether he whistles or whatever it is. And I like, I love that. This quote from Joseph Smith. He that can mark the power of omnipotence inscribed upon the heavens can also see God's own handwriting in the sacred volume in the scriptures. And then this part I love. And he who reads it oftenest, reads the scriptures oftenest, will like it best. And he who is acquainted with it will know the hand wherever he can see it. I'll play this game with my students when we study these chapters where I'll do a voice quiz and I'll play a whole bunch of different random voices, like a 10 minute or 10 second clip from Yoda, a 10 second clip from John Wayne, a 10 second clip from Steve Martin or whatever. And some of them, they're really quick to get. Like Yoda, almost everyone gets Yoda. If I do Winnie the Pooh, a lot of people get Winnie the Pooh. I do John Wayne and it's like two students. I do Clint Eastwood. It's like one or two students. Elvis, sadly, is like two or three students. Is he singing or talking? He's singing. He's singing. What? I'm all shook up. That's my quote. That's my clip. (laughs) But they don't know it because they haven't spent enough time with those voices. They're not recognizable to them. And so I think the whole power of this study this week is if we can identify the way that Jesus's voice sounds, the way that his character is and recognize that in our own life, that creates a great exercise for us in going through our life and saying, do I hear this often enough in my voice? Can I recognize him when he's there? And if not, then maybe I need to have more thought in what's going on in my life, or maybe I need to spend more time with the scriptures or more time with my obedience to commandments so that I can recognize that voice more, so that it becomes more plain in my life that he's there. I've always loved this story. Uh, This is from years ago in General Conference from uh, Elder John R. Lassiter of the 70. He tells this story. He says, Some years ago it was my privilege to visit the country of Morocco as part of an official United States government delegation. As part of that visit, we were invited to travel some distance into the desert to visit some ruins. Five large black limousines moved across the beautiful Moroccan countryside at considerable speed. I was riding the third limousine, which had lagged some distance behind the second. As we topped the brow of a hill, we noticed that the limousine in front of us had pulled off to the side of the road. As we drew nearer, I sensed that an accident had occurred and suggested to my driver that we stop. The scene before us has remained with me these many years. An old shepherd in the long flowing robes of the Savior's Day was standing near the limousine in conversation with the driver. Nearby, I noted a small flock of sheep, numbering not more than 15 or 20. An accident had occurred. The king's vehicle had struck and injured one of the sheep belonging to the old shepherd. The driver of the vehicle was explaining to him the law of the land. Because the king's vehicle had injured one of the sheep belonging to the old shepherd, he was now entitled to 100 times its value at maturity. However, under the same law, the injured sheep must be slain and the meat divided among the people. My interpreter hastily added, but the old shepherd will not accept the money. They never do. Startled, I asked him why, and he added, because of the love he has for each of his sheep. 
It was then that I noticed the old shepherd reach down, lift the injured lamb into his arms, and place it in a large pouch on the front of his robe. He kept stroking its head, repeating the same word over and over again. When I asked the meaning of the word, I was informed, Oh, he's calling it by name. All of his sheep have a name, for he is their shepherd, and the good shepherds know each one of their sheep by name. It was as my driver predicted. The money was refused, and the old shepherd with the small flock of sheep, with the injured one tucked safely in the pouch of his robe, disappeared into the beautiful deserts of Morocco. If I can testify of something, it's that, that Jesus has an individual care for each of us, and it's happening in our everyday lives. Sometimes it's just a matter of us recognizing it, knowing it well enough, knowing him well enough, knowing his character well enough, that when he shows up in our life, we recognize him, and then looking for it in our everyday life. Because if we do, I, I just... I know that he's there. So hopefully, as much as he individually knows us, we can also in turn do these things that help us grow closer to him so that when he does come or when we do feel those things right now in our lives, that we'll, we will be able to recognize who he is and the power that he has to heal, to strengthen us, and to turn turn our lives into something something better than we could have imagined. Um, as always, we have loved studying with you this week. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. And we will be back next week with the next chapter. So good luck with your study this week.